Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. If you'd please stand with me for the reading of the word. Reading out of the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, 42nd chapter, beginning with verse 1. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one. Chosen one has messianic overtones to it. In him I delight, I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed, he will not break. And a smoldering wick, he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he'll bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what the God, the Lord, says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk in it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I'll take hold of your hand. I'll keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open eyes that are blind, free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I'll not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Father, I pray your anointing upon your word that you'd open our ears, our hearts, our minds to receive this day in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I'm processing weeks back, and I'm realizing I've got basically two Sundays in this space of time to communicate to you. Um, I don't think it's for the last time. I fully intend to return. But just gets you thinking, what would be the two things? And so I thought a ways back, I thought I want to entitle it two really important things. And what would those two things be? And then I I got a little bit more um, Dr. Seuss. And so I've just entitled this two words. And, uh, and, and word one and word two, like thing one and thing two. So, so today is word one, the bruised reed. This passage in Isaiah is referred to as a messianic passage. In other words, it points towards Messiah. It highlights the servant. It's one of four what are called servant songs that highlight Jesus and his ministry. So here's my servant whom I will hold, my chosen one. That's why the, term, the, 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 the um, uh, television show, they call it the chosen stuff, but the, it has that concept of anointing of, of being Messiah. It highlights Jesus' ministry in saying that he's not going to shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. That doesn't mean he's not going to um, project his volume. What it means is he's not going to scrap with people in the streets. He's not going to coerce people. He's not going to dominate with his voice. Um, he's not going to be aggressive that there's a humility to him. 
bruised reed he'll not break, and a smoldering wick he'll not snuff out. We'll come back to that in a moment. Goes on and talks about um, this very important verse 7, freeing captives from prison, and particularly to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And then it, it finishes with verse 9 saying, the former things have taken place, new things I declare. And so whatever's been done, whatever's happened in the past, whatever sin has occurred or damage or brokenness, all that is now to be in the past. And there's something new that he's declaring that he's going to raise up. And he's declaring it before it comes into being that this is going to take place. Now, if there were... If there was a passage of scripture that I would say was my life passage or go-to passage, there's so many phenomenal ones. I mean, the, you know, the whole Bible, pick one, you can't go wrong. But for me, it's this passage in verse 3. And I, I rarely can even express it without um, breaking emotionally about it. Uh, there's something about this passage that reflects so much of the character of God, and yet I've rarely taught on it. Um, last time and one of the most recent times in years was at the youth retreat a couple of weeks or a couple of year, a year or two back, I think it was. But to me, if there's one word I wanted to express to you and I had only limited time, say a week or two, it would be this one about this read. It sums up so much of who God is. That where there's bruising and brokenness, that he doesn't come on and compound it by breaking it off and tossing it away into the fire, where there's a, a, a flame spiritually that's sputtering out, that he doesn't snuff it out, but that somehow he waits and patiently, you know, encourages it till it comes come to, to full strength again. What is our understanding of this passage? What is, how does this tell us about the nature of God? Well, I'm going to want to break that down for you today, but I can almost better start in the negative of what it is not, what Jesus does not do, what God does not do. And to do that, I'm going to draw from an article I read years back that really stuck out to me. It was back in 2009, the event happened, so I would have read about it in 2009, maybe 2010. Evidently, there's this bridge in a, a large city in southern China. I won't try to pronounce the name of it. And there was a disturbed man that was deep in financial debt and he was poised on the edge of this bridge, ready to jump off. And because he's contemplating the suicide, um, the police had come and they cordoned off the bridge. And it's causing a big disruption in the flow of traffic and, and generally in people's lives. And traffic stood still, according to the article, for over five hours. And as everyone stood watching, as they get fascinated at moments like that to see, is he going to jump or isn't he going to jump or how this is going to resolve or I just need to get on with my day, one 66-year-old man... Evidently uh, had enough. He pushes his way through the cordon, walks up to the man who's on the edge of the bridge, shakes the man's hand, and shoves him off the bridge. True story. Now, fortunately, the police had by that time already laid down one of those emergency cushions, you know, down below. The man was severely injured, but he didn't die. He, he survived the fall. But think of that. Hi, how are you doing? <laughs> Have a nice day. Later, he explained this. He says, why? He says, I pushed him off, quote, unquote, because jumpers like him are very selfish. Their action violates a lot of public interest. Um, they do not really dare to kill themselves. Instead, they just want to raise the relevant government authorities' attention to their appeals. 
So let's begin with what Jesus does not do. Jesus does not push people off of bridges. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He is patient. He is merciful. He is grace-filled. This is the nature of the God that we serve. It is who he is. When we look into this passage of Isaiah, you find that as much as it was prophesying of Jesus, Matthew recognizes this. And he goes to this passage in Matthew chapter 12. So Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is walking through a field of wheat on Sabbath. He and the boys in the band are breaking off the heads of some of the wheat to eat along the way. The Pharisees, religious leaders see that and say, wait a minute, that's work. You're on the Sabbath, there's to be no work on the Sabbath. And you're working to do that, to, you know, consume something on that. He challenges them. He tells them about David, who when he was on the run, took the freshly baked bread of, uh, a loaf of bread from uh, the tabernacle that was supposed to be set aside. And that was legitimate for him during that moment of time. He quotes from the prophet Hosea, which I'll come back to, but he, he references something that sums up much from the book of Hosea. And then he says, look it, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. From there, he goes on to a place into the synagogue. And there's a man there in the synagogue with a shriveled hand. And the leaders, again, are looking to bring charges against Jesus. And so they ask him, hey, is it legal to, is it lawful to, to heal on the Sabbath? That's work, isn't it? Doesn't that violate the Sabbath? He said, um, in the process, he says, if any of you has a sheep, it falls into a pit on the Sabbath. Aren't you going to take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, yes, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And so he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. He does it right in front of them. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. They're going to kill him over this restoration of the hand, this healing. And now we get to the crux of it. Verse 16, aware of this, um, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him. And it says he healed all who were ill, all of them. We don't know how many were, were ill, but he healed them all. He warned them not to tell others about him. Wouldn't it have been wonderful just to have been one of those people? I don't know what it is you got going on. Migraine, uh, something far, far more serious or life-threatening. And, and Jesus just heals all those? I mean, he warns them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through, and here's where Matthew goes to Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah, here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on and he'll proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. And then here we go. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Till he brought justice through to victory in his name the nations will put their hope. Matthew recognizes that there's something of this prophecy in Isaiah that points to Jesus, and he brings this out in the midst of the circumstances of that time. There is a discussion that occurred one time, supposedly, that there was a group of men in Oxford or so that had this big conference on, 
on what is the uniqueness of different religions and the comparative elements of it. And they were particularly processing what is unique in regards to uh, Christianity. Well, the incarnation, no, there's other religions that have different gods appearing and everything else. How about reincarnation or resurrection? Eh, they have others that come back from the dead. And, and so C.S. Lewis wanders into the room in the midst of these conversations. He says, what's the rumpus about? And here's a reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. What is different about Christianity than anything else? And Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. After some discussion, uh, the conference had, had to agree, and Philip Yancey writes about this and what's so amazing about grace. He says, the notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, and the Muslim code of law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity declares, or dares rather, to make God's love unconditional. Aware of our inbuilt resistance to grace, Jesus talked about it often. He described, he says, a world suffused with God's grace where the sun shines on people, good and bad, where birds gather seeds, gratis, with no charge neither plowing nor harvesting to earn them, where untended wildflowers burst into bloom on the rocky hillsides. Like a visitor from a foreign country who notices what the natives overlook, Jesus saw grace everywhere, he says in writing of that. There's this view within of how Christianity is viewed that it's this moralistic thing that we're constantly wanting to stop people from doing this or that, and we're all caught up with being good and righteous and, and precious, and, and there's this moral tone to it. Like, like Christianity is about morality, and while it has the most outstanding moral code of anything that's out there, it's not about morality per se, and here's a chance where you're going to misunderstand me, so listen closely, all right? It's, it's morals, and it's upstanding. Therefore, we judge everyone else, and we judge ourselves, and, and we're either then very prideful and arrogant, or we're completely broken and destroyed, if we're really honest with ourselves. One of the way or the other, we're, we're in bad shape over here. Or we go the other place. We, we embrace the idea of grace, unmerited. It's, it is the unique thing about Christianity, and I'm, I'm forgiven. That's what Easter's about. Praise God, resurrection, we're partying on, we're a good dude. And, and you know what? God loves me so much. He thinks I'm so special that no matter what I do, he's going to be good with it. That's grace, no matter what I do. So you know what? I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing because that's what I do. And God's going to be okay with it because he's graceful. Because bruised reed, he's not going to break. A, a sputtering, he's not going to snuff me out. And so we end up with this concept of cheap grace, forgetting the incredible cost that we tried to unfold last week. And we, we wander in this area and we just wander deeper into sin and, 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 and failure and separation from God. Or we get this moralistic code that we either obscure our sin or we're broken by it. Neither of those two things represent what it means to follow Jesus. What we find instead is the idea that grace is costly, as we said last week. That there's moral tones to it, but it's costly. That unconditional grace leads us to such an awareness of the cost that we begin to live, that when we begin to live in the grace of God, something new has to begin. This was the whole concept of what we see in that passage in Isaiah where it says the old things have passed, new things now take place. We set aside that and we walk, not so that we can 
be better and get approval, but because we have the approval, because the cost has been paid. And so now that past is set aside and we live differently and we're going to stumble, we're going to fall, we're going to make mistakes, but there's this constant process. The big word is sanctification, where I'm constantly finding things shaved away from me. It's kind of like a jeweler working on a stone. You ever see a, a diamond in the rough? It's ugly. I mean, you pick that thing up and, it, and they just don't look nice at all. They're rough and they look like a rock. But then you get in the hand of, a, of an expert jeweler and they begin to do what? They begin to make very specific cuts. They're very precise. And it's only when they make those cuts and take away and so this size of a diamond, when it's actually made to perfection, may drop down to this. But when it's done, and it's polished, and all the other stuff is worn away, you have this gem that glows with fire. That's us. He buys us with grace. But he doesn't stop there. He chips and chops and cuts and plants and polishes until there's a beauty that's involved bruised reed. He's not going to break. Bruised reed. No, this is completely good. Nothing wrong with this reed at all. When he's talking in Matthew chapter 12 about a bruised reed he'll not break. That's fine, but but what about chapter 11 in the book of Matthew? What, what is going on in, in the 11th chapter? And does it possibly influence the conversation in chapter 12? In the 11th chapter, John the Baptist, who's close to Jesus, has been thrown in, in a dungeon, a dark dungeon, He's eventually going to be executed. He sends some of his disciples to Jesus to say, hey, are you the one or are we looking for another? He's maybe discouraged. Maybe he's just wanting validation. Maybe just say, hey, get me out of this jail, whatever the case may be. And Jesus basically tells the disciples, look at I'm doing all the, the Messiah things. People are being healed. There's restoration, etc." And then it says this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 7. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? What did you go out to see? A reed swaying by the wind? It was a symbol of weakness. It was a symbol of somebody that just goes with the flow, that has no real strength. Is that what you went out to see? He specifies that. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? He's driving it home. There's an intensity of this drive. What did you go to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I'll send my messenger ahead of you and will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You and me, according to this, are greater than John the Baptist because of the blessings we have now that he didn't have exposure to. But this passage, as he's writing this, as he's, as he's saying this, is talking about this, read, is it possible that there's still a part of that process going on? What was the, what was the passage in Isaiah about? It's freeing the prisoner. It's, it's doing those things. But in John's case, there's not going to be a freedom. He's going to continue in that prison. And yet still, there's something of the presence of God that's being argued will be there even in the midst of it. 
This is bad enough just to read that's swing in the wind, but what happens if you have a broken reed? Well, can't even do anything with this now. You just throw it out. You put it on the fire, you toss it out. But he says a bruised reed. He won't. Somehow he's going to bind this up. And somehow he'll do what I can't do. And he'll wait until it's healed and restored and continues to grow. Ironic, isn't it? He talks about the bruised reed, which is you and me. The bruisings, the brokenness, the damage that we've caused ourselves or that others have done to us. We're the bruised reed. We're the ones who spiritually are guttering out in our flame. And he says he's not going to snuff us. He's going to come along and he's going he's to cup his hand around until it can grow back up. He's going to feed it until it grows to fullness again. Ironic, why? Scripture tells us that um, when Jesus being abused by the soldiers before his crucifixion, that they take a, a club made of a series of hardened reeds and they hit him with it. Bruised reed, he'll not break. Over time, sanctification takes place and we're transformed. That passage that he references in the 12th, that he pushes back with the Hosea passage when they're jumping all over him about illegalities and the moral tones again. He says this, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, you should know I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Whatever your view of God has been, and you have a right view if you think he's incredibly holy, because he is, and that issue of holiness is as much a part of him as the love is. It's equal to that, and it cannot abide sin. But you need to understand the outworking of this in grace is that he desires mercy, not sacrifice. The acknowledgement of God, that we just acknowledge him as Lord and Savior, as we acknowledge our sin and our failures and our weaknesses. This is what he desires, not to abuse, not to hold something over your head, not to have you linger in your pain or to cover it up with your pride. That if you were in the situation where you are this bruised reed, and at one point in time, all of us have been at one point or another, that he doesn't come off and say, ah, you know, it's no good. But he restores. That whatever spiritual loss is happening you of a guttering flame, he goes that along until it comes up in fullness. This is the nature of Christ. This is the centrality of Christianity. This concept of grace coming along to those who are broken and in need. Now, as I begin to draw this somewhat to a close, I, I want to share with you um, something I've shared before, but not in this way. And so I pray your indulgence for this moment of time. How many of you have ever seen the musical Les Miserables? How many of you have seen it? Okay, good section of you. It's probably my favorite musical of all time. Um, there's one scene in it that I find disturbing increasingly. Um, and, and it's a character that, interestingly enough, is one of the most celebrated characters of this uh, play. And it's the, the character played by, uh, entitled Thenadar. Thenadar is this, this innkeeper who's just a horrible person. And it's conveyed several times. And people actually celebrate this character. They're drawn to his humor in other ways. And I find that a twisted aspect of our culture today. But the two central figures is a guy named Jean Valjean and another guy, a police inspector, called Jovert. When we open up on the musical, Jean Valjean is um, 
is in prison. He's at forced labor. Uh, evidently 20 years before, with his niece dying of starvation, his sister's daughter, he steals a loaf of bread and theft was dealt harshly in 18th century, 19th century uh, on France. And so um, he gets five years for the stealing of the bread, 15 more because he tried to run away. So for 20 years, he's at hard labor for stealing a loaf of bread. He's a man of powerful physical abilities, but he's become beaten and darkened over time. And the, the opening song is, look down, look down. Don't look them in the eyes. Look down. Don't, don't, don't let them see you looking at them. They'll beat you. And, and, and at the end of the song, Jovert comes, the guy who's been overseeing his, his uh, um, prison sentence, and gives him his, his, his letter of parole, which means he's free, and, but he's not free. The letter of parole means that, that you have to, every town you go to, you have to report in, and you have to show them, I'm, I'm an ex-convict. And so he's on parole for the rest of his life This follows him. Well, as he's going out and tries to live life again as a moral man, which originally he was somewhat that, um, he gets rejected again and again. He can't find work. Everyone he knows has died. He's, he's left, and he becomes increasingly more desperate until he encounters at one point in time this priest who brings him in for the night, and the priest feeds him, and he treats him warmly and treats him kindly, gently, and in good favor. Well, in repayment of that, after the priest has gone to bed, um, Valjean realizes that the silverware, real silver on the table, um, he could do a lot with that. So he steals all the silverware, puts it in a bag, and, and, and leaves in the middle of the night. The next day, the priest gets a knock on his door, and two policemen are there, and they've got a beaten and bruised um, Valjean with them. They said, hey, we found this guy. Um, he's got your silverware. He says that you gave it to him. Give us the facts, and we'll take him off. We just have, just, we're just doing our due diligence. And the priest, in an amazing moment, says, Oh, my dear friend, I'm so good to see you again. But I don't understand when you left. You, 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 you left the very best behind. I'd, I'd also given you these two silver uh, candlesticks. And he takes the silver candlesticks. Why did you even leave the very best behind? And he gives them to him. And the policeman says, Are you saying that this guy is telling the truth? Oh, yeah, yeah. Thank you for bringing him back. All good. And the policemen leave. Valjean's stunned. This would have meant him going back to prison for life. And the priest says to him, look at I have basically just bought your soul for God. I've ransomed you for the price of this silver, and so you must serve God from now on. Well, he can't enforce that. So he goes on to bed, and, and Valjean leaves processing all this stuff, and this is where the first of two songs that you see, and I'm going to sing both of them. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> This, this guy's voice is phenomenal, guys. And mine's just really great. No, I mean, no, this is nothing like this. This is, this is, but it's hard not to hear the voice. And so he's struggling with this because this man who was just a good man who, by all normal standards, and had just made a mistake for 20 years. So he says, what have I done, sweet Jesus? What have I done? Become a thief in the night? Become a dog on the run? Have I fallen so far and is the hour so late that nothing remains but the cry of my hate? The cries in the dark that nobody hears. Here where I stand at the turning of the years, a pivotal moment. If there's another way to go, I missed it 20 long years ago. My life was a war that could never be won. They gave me a number and murdered Valjean when they chained me and left me for dead just for stealing a mouthful of bread. Yet why did I allow that man to touch my soul and teach me love? He treated me like any other. He, 
gave me his trust. He called me brother. My life he claims for God above. Can such things be? For I had come to hate the world, this world that always hated me. And then he he goes deeper. Take an eye for an eye. Turn your heart into stone. This is all I have lived for. This is all I have known. One word from him and I'd be back. Beneath the lash upon the rack. Instead, he offers me my freedom. I feel my shame inside me like a knife. He told me that I have a soul. How does he know? What spirit comes to move my life? Is there another way to go? And then this part that is later reprised in a different reprised in another song. I am reaching but I fall and the night is closing in. As I stare into the void to the whirlpool of my sin, he finally faces who he is and he's become he says, I'll escape now from that world, from the world of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must begin. In other words, he dies and is reborn. He tears up his ticket of parole, accepts the grace of God, and walks to start a new life as a man under the grace of God. He's very successful with it. He becomes the mayor of a town. He becomes a business owner. But Jovar, the moment he tore up that parole, is now pursuing him. He shows up in the town. He begins to interview. He, he sees a, an act of strength by Valjean. And he begins to think, this is this man again that I've been searching for. But just as he's about to close in on him, the report comes that a man fitting the description they believed to be Jean Valjean has is, is been captured in a nearby town. So they go off and they're having the court case there and Valjean has to struggle with this. Oh, if this man's taken away, I'm free. No one will pursue me anymore. My past is totally dead. But something, grace has changed him. And so in a pivotal moment, he shows up in the court and he says, I am Jean Valjean. Let this man go, he's innocent. Jovar begins to pursue him. He asks for time to go and help a child and Jovar won't give it to him, so he has to leave. And, and the rest of the story is him, Jovar, pursuing Valjean. Until one final moment when a revolutionary moment in France breaks out. Not the revolution, but a pre-revolutionary moment. And, and Jovar is in as a secret policeman to try to get stories on him. And Valjean, for another reason, happens to be there and encounters him. And the, the revolutionaries have tied up um, Jovar and they're going to execute him. And, and they put Valjean in charge. He says, I'll take care of him. But, but when the time comes, he cuts him loose. And Jovar's sitting here saying, I'm still coming after you. Valjean says, I know. This doesn't end here. I will still pursue you. I am the law. Valjean says, I know. I know. But you're free. I, I can't take my revenge. And this impacts Jovar so deeply that he then sings this song. Who is this man? What sort of devil is he to have me caught in a trap and, and choose to let me go free? It was his hour at last to put a seal on my fate, wipe out the past, wash me clean off the slate. All it would take was a flick of his knife. Vengeance was his, and he gave me back my life. Damned if I'll live in the debt of a thief. Damned if I'll yield at the end of the chase. I am the law, and the law is not mocked. I'll spit his pity right back in his face. There's nothing on earth that we share. It's either Valjean or Jovar. Two ways of living, under grace or under law. And my thoughts fly apart. Can this man be believed? Shall his sins be forgiven? Shall his crimes be reprieved? And must I now begin to doubt? 
who never doubted all these years, I'm a righteous man. I am the law. I've done things right. I submit there's only one way to do it. It's legal. Who never doubted all these years, my heart is stone and still it trembles. The world I've known is lost in shadow. Is he from heaven or from hell? And does he know that granting me my life today, this man has killed me even so? So he's now either going to be reborn or reject. And now he repeats almost the same lines that Val John does, but with a tragic twist. I am reaching, I'm trying to comprehend grace, but I fall. And the stars are black and cold as I stare into the void of a world that cannot hold. This, this is different from my reality. I'll escape now from the world, from that world, from the world of Jean Valjean. There's nothing, nowhere I can turn. There's nowhere to go on. And he kills himself. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. An acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. A bruised reed won't break it. A flame that's dying down, that spiritually you're just about gone. I'm not going to come and snuff you out, God says. If you can face truly your sin and your past, he says, I'm going to do something different. And those things will be set aside. And there's a new way to begin. There's one final song, and I'll not sing this one either. This song is referred to actually as the song of songs. It's a song of passionate love of a man towards a woman. But most would agree that at its core, it's talking about God's love for us. You see, in the scripture, we're told that the church, those who accept God's grace, are his bride. This is why marriage between man and woman matters so much because it's actually a symbol of the church. God as our groom. Jesus is our groom and us as the bride. And in the Song of Songs, we're referred to as his beloved. Do you know that, male or female, that you are beloved by God? Whatever your bruising, whatever your loss, that he calls you his beloved and that if we are loved, to be loved is to be changed. Not because of moral issues, not because of liberty issues, but because we've been loved, we now are changed. Whatever bruising, whatever circumstances, this is the nature of God. He is holy. But if he sees you in your bruisedness, Father, this morning, in this place right now, there are bruised reeds everywhere. Some of us are just barely hanging on in the wind. There are those of us, Lord, who the flame of our, our desire for you has begun to gutter out in the oppression of the winds that blow around us so cold today in this country, the violence, the hatred, an eye for an eye, But Matthew, he saw the words of the prophet Isaiah brought to fulfillment in Jesus. So this morning, you sing over us.
And I pray, Lord, for everyone who hears this this morning, whatever their circumstances, that this morning they would hear your voice and your song for them. It's time to own your belief. 
chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. I am who you say I am. Who the sun sets free, always free. challenging uh, freedom and liberty too. Walk in this week and, uh, and, and, and be loved. And in being loved, be changed. Former things are gone. A new story begins. Next week, word two. <laughs> and then after that, a whole lot of other fun stuff. There'll be those available up front if you'd like to come forward for prayer. Father, I pray as we walk into this week, we'd walk into it with a, a, a sense of joy and peace that, that whatever flames are going down a bit, that, that you do like a lot of us would do, we put our hands around that flame so the wind can't blow it out and we cup it in such a way so that it can regain its strength. And so, Lord, I pray as people walk into the wind of this world right now that they'd feel your hands cupped around them, Lord God, until the flame of passion for you grows strong once again. And guide us into your truth, I pray, for we are gathered in the name of Jesus Christ, and in that same name do we now go forth, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. And the church said, amen. amen.